Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which is rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Our guest today is Andrea Bernstein. She, Andy Kroll, and Ilya Moritz have produced a phenomenal new podcast series called We Don't Talk About Leonard. It's about Leonard Leo, who is the most important guy on the right most Americans have never heard of. Andrea, I'm so delighted to have you on today. It's been a minute since I've seen you, my friend, but we're, uh, but when I listened to the first episode of this podcast, it was exactly what podcasting and in-depth reporting when they merge can do particularly well. And it was a great piece of storytelling. And so I guess to start off, what led you guys to decide to do this particular series? Well, thank you so much for those kind words. ProPublica has, you know, we've been reporting on Leonard Leo and on sort of, uh, you know, accountability in the courts for quite some time. And Andy had done a couple of stories. He'd done a story about a $1.6 billion dark money contribution that had been made essentially to a group that Leo only controlled, that he could spend however he wanted. It was at the time the largest dark money contribution in the history of the country. Right. And we reported on that and we began to ask ourselves, well, what is Leonard Leo interested in? What is he going to do with all that money? What is going to happen now? And he had been known sort of to the extent that he is known at all in the broader culture for his role in advising Trump on Supreme Court nominees. But that is kind of where people's knowledge ended. And it was it was really fascinating because, you know, the last podcast we did was on the January 6th insurrection, as you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we would say to people, we're doing a podcast on the insurrection. And people were like, oh, wow, everybody knew what that was. Right. This time, the opposite. We were like, Leonard Leo. And they were like, Leonard Leo, wait, who is that? And we would say the Federalist Society guy, the Supreme Court guy. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, right, him. And we realized that pretty early on in our reporting, that here was somebody who's had an immense influence on American society, an immense influence on the courts. Mm -hmm. And most people didn't know who he was. And we thought that is ripe for an investigation. He is a Robert Moses-like person. He has a huge effect on American society, a real power broker, and yet people don't understand the links. And that's what we wanted to begin to fill in. 
So this first episode, you sort of did a 30,000 foot view of, of where it came from. And you did mention that. And I, I can, I can tell you as somebody who came out of that world, you know, there was a sort of a code of omerta around him. You didn't talk, as you say, we don't talk about Leonard. There was a certain degree of the, this understanding that federal society and, and, and the other parts of what I call the expanded Leonard verse are, enormously powerful in Washington and enormously influential, and you don't want to cross them. Give us a little bit of the background on how he rose from being a kid who grew up in suburban New Jersey wearing suits and bow ties to high school um, to become this unbelievably powerful figure. And I, I love your Robert Moses analogy because he really has been an architect of enormously consequential and powerful things that many people hate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he was he was born on Long Island, but he spent much of his life in New Jersey. And, you know, for those of your listeners who don't live in New Jersey, he lived in a section of New Jersey where, as it's been described to me, it has kind of an identity crisis. You don't know if your TV station are channels 3, 6, and 10 or <laughs> 2, 4, and 7. You don't know if your right. baseball team is the Yankees or the Phillies. It's somewhere in the middle of New York and Philadelphia. And he grew up in a pretty modest house. I went and had a look at it, a one-story house. And, you know, a part of that area where the houses were relatively close together, sort of an Italian neighborhood. And he went to a public school, Monroe Township High School. And it's really there that he begins to sort of seem to have made his mark. We, we spoke to someone who described himself as Leo's best friend. His name was Snehal Shah. And he talked about how he and Leo were sort of the smart kids. They were the outcasts. Leo wanted to be a lawyer from age nine. That <laughs> uh, they, were, they were bullied because they were the smart ones. Mm -hmm. And Leo was... Sort of, he was like, yeah, I think he was interested in politics, but the biggest thing that he remembered is that he was opposed to abortion. That was an animating principle. There was a fight in a classroom or an argument or dispute uh, where the people were talking about it in the hallways afterwards in high school. And that was Leonard Leo. And I'm probably dating myself a little bit, but it was kind of like the Michael J. Fox character in Family Ties, Alex Keaton, like sort of the <laughs> Reagan era uh, you know, sort of person who was dressed right. formally and really believed in conservative ideology from high mm -hmm. school. And one of the things that I did not know I was going to find when I went to look up the yearbook, well, first of all, I didn't know if, if I was going to find the yearbook. And I had called up the library and I said, do you have the yearbook from his year? And they were like, well, we don't have it, but, you know, come down and have a look. And I thought, okay, well, maybe he'll be in a picture from, you know, the mm -hmm. year after, the year before. So I went down there and I said, do you have the class of 1983? And they said, yes, we do. They brought it out. And there I start leafing through the pages and, you know, it's the 1980s. So there's a lot of mustaches and there's big hair and you get to the front of the class page and there's Leonard Leo wearing okay. a jacket, looking very formal, president <laughs> of the class, National Honor Society. His nickname was Moneybags Kid. And, you know... Right. He, we asked him about that and he did not do an interview for our podcast because okay. he told us he, he would do an interview, but only if we didn't ask him about his financial arrangements or relationships with the Supreme Court justices. We declined, uh, but he did answer written questions and he did uh, answer factual questions. And he explained to us that he was called Moneybags Kid because he had helped raise money for the 
prom and the class trip, and he did such a good job that there was money left over to go to the high school. But one of the most striking images from this yearbook was most likely to succeed. Leonard Leo (laughs) and Sally Schroeder, who went on to be his, he went on, she went on to marry him and is now Sally Leo. And they are sitting in front of a table with a sort of array of cash and they're holding more in their hands, like a, like in a poker hand and superimposed on each of their glasses is a dollar sign. And to me, that was such a striking picture for someone who has been such a successful fundraiser and, you know, who has gotten such enormous influence over the judiciary uh, and over sort of all of American politics, really, because of his ability to raise money so effectively. It's fascinating that that he was building that skill set out early and his and, and look, he's a couple years younger than I am. I think he's like a year or two years younger than I am. And there were a lot of there were there were not a, a non-zero number of guys. I was one of those guys too. My high school picture is coat and tie and you know, <laughs> the whole thing because you know it was sort of the you know, preppy schoolboy thing, I guess. But so let's talk a little bit about two things. First, um, you know, people hear about the Federalist Society. I don't think they fully understand it out in the civilian world very much. Even even a lot of our people that are going to be listening to this podcast are they sort of hear it they don't know what it means and they don't recognize its primacy in the establishment over the last 30 plus years of a very conservative judicial culture across the country tell us a little bit about the federal society and leonard's role in in expanding it and in and how he relates to it today the federal society was founded in the 1980s by a group of sort of conservative intellectuals, basically, who felt that the American Bar Association and sort of the world of lawyers had been taken over by the left. And they felt that they were very marginalized. So they founded the Federalist Society to promote, uh, you know, what they have described as the doctrine of originalism, that you should go back to the original constitution. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether that's the case. So we're not going to go there today, but that's what the motivating force for, for founding it was. And so that was in the, in the eighties when Leo was, was still in high school, but he goes to Cornell law school, which he got a undergraduate and a graduate and his law degree in six years. And, and while he's at Cornell, (laughs) while he's at Cornell, he goes to to do an internship in Washington. He starts to sort of encounter the conservative legal movement. Uh, While he is still in law school, it's a whole Bork nomination process. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure your listeners are well-versed with what happened with that and the idea of Bork becoming a a verb. And that's a really searing experience. And so he, at Cornell, founds the Federalist Society, invites Ed Meese, the former attorney general, and other luminaries, and he really embraces and becomes part of that world. And he goes down to Washington after law school, and he gets a clerkship on the U.S. Court of Appeals, among other things, where he becomes friends with Clarence Thomas, goes to work on the Thomas nomination, and uh, that really forms him. And then after that, he goes to the Federal Society where he stays for 30 years right? and really sees it as his mission to, to build up, you know, it was like a student kind of law school club. 
and he gets hired on to to be the lawyer's chapter he- head. Mm-hmm. He's making connections with lawyers and with judges all across the country. Sure. And he starts to build this pipeline. And that is what Leonard Leo does. He starts to learn that you gain power through identifying talent and placing people in key positions and then being able to go back to those people when you need them for something. Mm -hmm. And that is something, you know, it's uh, he has found people who he has met in law school. He has helped them throughout their careers. And then when he has needed a someone who he sees as a conservative loyalist to be placed in a position, uh, he has he has done that. And we know that, you know, he um, was instrumental in putting together the list for Trump of judges. And these were lawyers in many cases that he had studied throughout their careers and sometimes people that he knew. Leonard Leo has five Supreme Court justices he was personally responsible for placing on the court in in a greater or lesser measure. This court really reflects an awful lot of that 30-year plan that he executed on in ways that I think few people really appreciate. I guess the 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 back end of the selections have seemed a little more chaotic and maybe that reflects Trump and and his world but it's certainly you know getting Alito on the court and and getting Roberts on the court did not feel as chaotic and strange particularly as Kavanaugh both of whom seemed like he was reaching into the pool and looking for very real I mean Kavanaugh was always a go along to get along guy in DC he he struck me as somebody that Leonard would love to have on the court because he's predictable and reachable and they know how to work with the guy. But that footprint he's had on the on these justices, I think people don't understand how the mojo of the FedSoc society with a Republican um, lawyer imposes on them so quickly. Uh, but my question is, I'm sorry, kind of a long way around to this question. Leonard is a much more traditional conservative of the oldest school. He's a much more traditional social conservative because I was always a, a, a traditional conservative, but I was never a social guy. I was a foreign policy and an economic individualism and liberty guy. Leonard was like the the alpha dog of the social conservative movement. As conservatism has changed, as Trumpism has it replaced traditional conservatism, how does a Leonard continue to fit in or is he just going to try to keep doing what he does to keep stacking the courts, state and federal, with his kind of people? Well, we're going to have more to say about that in episodes two and three. Um, but let me just say that um, generally, uh, first of all, in sort of the Supreme Court justices that he's responsible for, he's not responsible for Clarence Thomas, but he worked on his no, nomination. Right, he right. played a crucial role uh, in research on that mm-hmm. effort. And uh, so he was sort of somebody who helped to... Uh, not only nominate, but confirm six, six of the nine Supreme Court justices, which is quite a record. Right. And if you go back to, you know, sort of Roberts and Alito, one of the things that we mm-hmm. talk about in our podcast is how Roberts was the beginning of this sort of financial network that, that Leo began to put together, mm-hmm. where um, he began to sort of quietly raise money for this network of groups that were treating these 
Supreme Court nominations like political campaigns and running ads in districts and targeting specific senators and really shoring that up. And there was a lot of people that we spoke to. I mean, I don't know what your thinking was at the time, but there were a lot of people who sort of were like, why does it matter if you have the numbers in the Senate? Like, you know, what 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 is this about? But it really had an effect. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is someone who, you know, has played played a long game and been successful. And. You know, this was pre-Citizens United. Here was really an effort to raise money outside of the political system, raise it for the kind of groups that you don't have to disclose your donors. Right. They're all C3, C4. Exactly. And that he really understood how to sort of marry the the money with the idea of let's get these people on the courts that are going to uh, rule in very, very conservative ways. And to your second point, absolutely. I mean, way back, you know, to high school, Leo was passionate about abortion. We heard about that from people he went to college with, people he went to law school with. And very, very early in his career, I mean, he wasn't one of the things that was a real revelation to me. uh, And we talk about this a little bit in the first episode about, for example, in Missouri, is he was very really tried to have influence on the judges that would be selected for the Missouri Supreme Court. Right. And it wasn't like he wanted someone who was generally conservative, like someone in the R column. It was he wanted someone who had a specific set of beliefs Mm -hmm. that were agreed with his very conservative beliefs, particularly about abortion. And he worked very hard to get that. And that, to me, was striking is it was Mm -hmm. I had always thought, okay, there's a kind of general you know, like the left has their push and the right has their push mm-hmm. and they try to get people on their side. But with Leonard Leo, one of the real things that we learned in putting together this podcast and this investigation was that it wasn't just generally agreeing. It was specifically agreeing that he worked on. I knew some of the players. I used to do some politics in Missouri. And I know that story of just how willing Leonard, who, is, who comes across a lot of the time as you know, sort of affable, was willing to just drop the hammer and th- and and outright threaten them, yeah, and 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 outright go at them into in, in you know by hinting that there would be electoral consequences for any resistance to his idea on how they were going to do the judicial. It was like a, com- a nominating commission at the time, but you know, and he's going up against folks like Matt Blunt, who was not exactly a flaming progressive. It's a fascinating role. Like I said, I have some some. Missouri politics in my in my before times, and it, it fascinated me. Just the, the guy really is willing to go pretty hard to get what he wants. One of the things that was so interesting about Missouri, I should have talked to you, but I called and called and called and emailed and interviewed people in Missouri because there were these sort of hints that Leonard Leo was interested. For example, this group, which was uh, then called the Judicial Crisis Network, was spending money to influence the outcome of the courts. Uh, full disclosure, um, I, in the, I think it was the 2006 election cycle, did a series of radio ads for the Judicial Crisis Network. Uh, just letting everybody know that. That's just for full disclosure. <laughs> uh, I think I made about $22,000 on the whole deal. So, it hasn't influenced my behavior or beliefs. <laughs> well, one of the things that was quite fascinating to me when calling up people is I asked them, judges, I said, well, did was the Federalist Society involved? And they were like, mm, I don't 
think so, maybe. And a lot, a lot of people gave me that response. And then we came across these old emails that the AP had, which very clearly traced how Leonard Leo personally had been involved. And to me, that was a real hallmark of the way he's worked, which is that it's only on a need-to-know basis. And if you don't know, you don't know. And so many people, like, for example, the former chief justice of Missouri did not know that Leonard Leo was trying to affect the way the justices were selected. Mm -hmm. And that was something that we encountered all along this way. Uh, you'll see it in other states as we go through that people were like, no, 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 no. I don't know anything about it until you find the actual people who do. And then this a different story emerges. Well, it is it is fascinating because people like Matt and, um, and people like Martin, folks out there, these were not progressives or Democrats. They were rock-ribbed Republicans who got their backs up a little tiny bit initially over the way he wanted it done. And he won. He beat them. Um, and beat him pretty hard. He recently received a, as you mentioned in the top, a 1.6 billion with a B folks, billion dollar uh, gift from a major donor. Um, talk about who that was, why he gave that much money. And what do you speculate that Leonard is going to do with the, with an amount of money that would kick off in interest alone enough to fund like 10 big super PACs a year? One of the reasons we named our series We Don't Talk About Leonard was that people didn't want to talk to us. And, you know, we were making a podcast and we didn't have people who wanted to say anything even on background, uh, and let alone get any tape. And we were going, okay, we're going to make a podcast about this person that nobody wants to talk about. And one of the things that sort of came back to us is because of the power of that money, that people want some of it. Uh, or think they might get some of it, or maybe are getting some of it. And it is an in, just really influential. The money comes from an electronics uh, magnate, I guess you would call him. His name is Barry Side from Chicago, who's a very, you know, someone who has certainly contributed generously to conservative causes over the years, but has been a pretty low profile figure. And Leonard Leo convinced this gentleman, who has no heirs, to basically turn over his fortune to a trust called the Marble Freedom Trust, which, well, it's a, it's really a dark money group. Uh, it's called the, the Marble Freedom Trust, and it can be spent on anything else, uh, anything, basically, any cause uh, that Leo wants it to. And, you know, we have some glimpses of what's coming with it. Uh, which we're going to get sort of more into in, in episode three. But suffice it to say that it gives Leonard Leo the ability to really control massive parts of the conservative network uh, and also controls who says what about him. Right. And so my next question is what I call the Leonard verse. And yes, there's FedSoc. Now there's Marble. There's also a private PR firm that he owns, or, or he either owns it or is partial owner of it called CRC. Talk a little bit about how this whole uh, accretion of various groups around Leonard Leo works. So he uh, had worked at the Federal Society for 30 years. He left in 2020 and uh, began a number of ventures, one of which was 
uh, CRC Advisors, which is a sort of a, a strategy firm. I mean, a PR firm probably undersells it, although they do do PR. They do his PR. Uh, one of the things that struck us is they also do PR for the Judicial Crisis Network and for the Federalist Society. So here were these independent groups, sort of, uh, that we asked our questions for the story about Leonard Leo to the PR firm that is part owned by Leonard Leo. Uh, so it gives you a sense of the, the tightness of it. Uh, and, you know, we have glimpses of what CRC Advisors is doing. Certainly they, you know, represent a lot of high-level people, but they also get, you know, they do a lot of work for groups that Leo is associated with, like uh, the Republican Attorneys General Association, for example. So. He has sort of, you know, gone into this private business, which is doing works within a network uh, and, uh, you know, making a lot of money and, you know, or, or doing well for himself. I mean, certainly better than he did at a nonprofit. He recently bought this lovely $3 million mansion in Maine. And our podcast starts with a party in Maine. Uh, that was the night before the Dobbs decision where there's Leo with some two dozen federal judges and they are having a sort of, you know, lavish celebration at his home. And for us, it really was a real story about the network that he has built and how deeply it goes. And it's not just about the Supreme Court, but it's about the judiciary going all the way down into the states and up and down through the federal courts. And I think that is one of the things that that you start to touch on is as we just talked about Missouri, that folks don't understand yet is that is that the Federal Society is and Leo himself are deeply, deeply involved in applying all these tools they've built with all these resources they have to reshape state court races. And now they're working down to like district attorneys and and state state attorney races that are you know, ordinarily not even on the radar screen of Washington, D.C. interest groups, but they're working it all the way up and down the, the food chain politically. So, Andrea, before I let you go, tell me what you have in future episodes. Give us a little spoiler on the next couple of episodes of We Don't Talk About Leonard. Yeah, so we are going to be looking at, uh, I mean, we looked at Missouri, uh, which was, you know, Leo didn't exactly get his way in Missouri, but he learned some very important lessons about how to influence state Supreme Court judges. And we're going to be talking about the lessons that he learned and how he used those lessons to start winning and start getting the, the courts that he wanted. We're also going to be looking uh, at state attorneys general and the way in which uh, Leo and his network have been involved, uh, you know, in those efforts. And, one of the things that we've learned is that his influence goes uh, much deeper and much broader than most people realize. And, you know, Democrats are starting to catch up now, starting to spend a lot of money on these things. But so many of them said to us, we are 30 years behind. Leonard Leo saw this. He saw this decades ago and he began executing on it. And we are only just now realizing this and trying to catch up. I wrote about it in my second book and I got blowback from my conservative friends at the time. Like, don't talk about it because you know what? He's a good dude. This was back still when they were, Republicans still spoke to me. And I, by the way, I teased one of them earlier and I said, hey, I'm about to do a podcast about your buddy Leonard Leo, a fairly conservative attorney 
who is privately not an insane person, but like so many people in Washington is towing the line. And it's the response was, please don't mention my name. Yeah, exactly. We don't talk about Leonard. We don't talk about Leonard. So, well, Andrea, thank you so, so, so much for coming on the, the enemies list today. Um, this was a great interview. And folks, the podcast is We Don't Talk About Leonard from ProPublica. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is a fascinating insight into the way the machine of Republican and conservative politics really works. As, and it's a profile of one of the most important people you've probably never heard of. So once again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, and we will talk to you again very soon. Thank you so much. It's that is very, very high, pra- uh, high praise considering the source. Great talking to you. All right, folks, on the enemies list today is Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City. Now, I have a little experience in New York back when Rudy Giuliani wasn't completely insane. I did some campaigns for him and I briefly served in City Hall as an advisor to the mayor. And I can tell you one thing for all Rudy's fuckery and weirdness and and corruption in this part of his life, there was a time, even before 9-11, where Rudy prized being in action. If there was a flood in New York, he would have been there. If a building collapsed, we were in the truck at 9 o'clock at night, 1 o'clock in the morning, whenever it took to go there. If there was a big fire, if a cop had been injured or a firefighter had been injured on the job, he was there at the hospital when they got checked in. Eric Adams was checked out on the flood this week. Uh, There's a simple lesson about leadership, folks, and uh, almost all of it is showing the hell up. And I don't live in New York anymore, but I still love that city. And I hate seeing it mismanaged, and I hate seeing it run by people who don't give a damn enough to show up. So Eric Adams, you're on the enemies list for this week. Get your shit together. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.